Hello everyone, this is Andy Brewer with Northwest AHEC. I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Chris Jones, of also of Northwest AHEC. Um, Chris got his bachelor's degree uh, in parks and recreation and has, has dabbled into many things and, and eventually ended up with a doctorate in public health from UNC Chapel Hill. Um, welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And what I thought we'd talk today about would be, you know, public health items. I mean, obviously we're in this big public health crisis. Um, and if, from a regional perspective, you, you, you manage a team that is responsible for our 17-county region of private practices. And um, let's just start there. What, do you, what, what is going on in the region in, in the world of private um, clinical practice? Well, uh, yes, so I, I work with a team of five practice support coordinators who cover our 17-county region. Uh, we work with a caseload of about 100 practices at a time, I'm always adding and dropping off, but it's around 100 practices. Uh, we work with them on a variety of projects from quality improvement projects to electronic health record selection and optimization. Uh, we do workflow redesign, and then we work with you know, public and private partners to roll out various quality initiatives. Um, we, before COVID came along, had uh, a fully funded caseload of projects that we were working on. Uh, we we're working on a project to assess risky drinking population, uh, we were training on our North Carolina Health Information Exchange. We were working with North Carolina Medicaid to um, to roll out a man managed care project throughout the state. Uh, so then the, the COVID thing popped up in our industry, just like everybody else's industry. And we had to shift gears as the attention and needs of the practices we work with shifted. Um, the first thing that happened in our region was uh, patients simply stopped coming for scheduled appointments. Um, and this was to avoid uh, the, the opportunity to be infected with COVID. And in some cases, the practices uh, closed their doors and, and canceled appointments. In some cases, patients just decided not to show up. Uh, and so just like the restaurant industry or, you know, any of the, the businesses struggling these days, uh, rural primary care all of a sudden wasn't doing wellness visits. They weren't doing, uh, you know, their chronic disease visits, uh, the, the variety of things that bro both brought in work and they were billing for ceased. So uh, the most urgent issue in the clinics that we work with now are business continuity issues. How do we uh, ramp back up the patient visits, which are essential for health and public health, 
they're essential to make sure that patients get the care that they need so they don't show up in the emergency room later. Um, and they're essential to, frankly, keep the lights on in the clinics. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what we're focusing on now, what clinics really need most of is how do they perform services using distance technology, just like everywhere else? How do they use any number of available web conferencing tools to do um, telehealth and telemedicine and get paid for it? Which that's that's been a, a real challenge, and we're working with them. Yeah, I, I bet that is. I I think that a lot of people don't realize that the healthcare industry was affected the way it was, especially the clinicians. And we all have these sort of media-driven narratives that you know the clinics are inundated with lines of people who are sick, and you know they're just working around the clock to treat people. But the reality is, is a lot of these just general care practices are, are just stopped um, uh, in in their tracks. And, and so, you know, it, it is, I think, an opportunity that, that telehealth become, you know, comes in it, into its own. We've been talking about it for, I, I mean, as long as I've been around healthcare, I think, and it's been a, uh, an effort ongoing. And I think now it's just, it was forced upon everyone who was either slow to adopt or reluctant to. And now it becomes such a crucial part of that business continuity. So I see that as a positive outcome that we can do more scalable, quicker, preventative medicine, not the acute problems, but the, the um, you know, just the general population health. Uh, to be able to offer, um, you know, question and answer and just well visits, you know, even even maybe proactive by the practitioner to ping someone, hey, I'm going to call you at this time and just check on, you know, how you doing and, and give you some motivational interviewing or all the, you know, the number of other things in SBIRT or, or, or any of the tools that they might use just to check up on wellness. And, and so I see that as an opportunity for increasing the health of the public through telehealth. Now, as far as, uh, you know, what COVID does for the delayed acute problems or, or needs that people had, you know, elective surgeries and the things that, that got put on hold, um, you know, those, those will be remain or, will remain to be seen how, how those get picked up in the system and how it strains the system or pre- presents other challenges. But um, I just went off on a long tirade there um, without a question, but uh, uh, maybe maybe uh, back up to EHR and, and how important data is now and, and how the rollout of that that your practice has been so involved with across our region um, has, has created a footprint for collecting valuable data that we can use at a statewide level. So uh, I know you are on the board um, and, and I guess chair of that board for Inchica. So explain about what how their involvement is too and, and the EHR in general and, the, and, and knowing all this data across the state. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's a, an interesting history with healthcare and data. It seems like they would go hand in hand. Um, I often refer to the fact that uh, when I was 16, I got a checking account and an ATM card. And, you know, here we are some 32 years later, and we're still getting cranked up with uh, with each patient having access to a portal and being able to log in with the PIN and get their health information the way we've been getting banking 
information for years. Um, the program I'm working with, practice support program of the Area Health Education Centers program, started in 2009 uh, via the High Tech program, uh, which is a, a government uh, program um, that that was brought in at that time to shift from paper-based records to electronic records. And during those days, in 2009, most of the practices that we were working with that weren't affiliated with a major health center, um, they all had paper-based records. And so we worked with them to put in certified systems. So I would say over the last 10 years, I have seen a huge change across our region where we uh, flipped from most practices not having an electronic system to now they most do have an electronic system. And as part of that effort, we have grown up um, a state health information exchange. We've had various levels of that. There's always been a, a coastal connect on the coast. There's been an ad hoc system out there. There's been uh, a system in the Hickory area that they've used, but now we have a statewide health information exchange system. So all these practices that have, um, they have now gone from paper to electronic, they're able to actually submit data on each patient uh, to a statewide exchange. So if somebody presents an emergency room while they're on vacation in Wilmington, they're able to pull their records from their location, uh, you know, in Raleigh or something like that. Um, and so what that's done is that has provided pathways for syndromic surveillance. So in the era of COVID, where uh, the Department of Health and Human Services is reporting cases, on a daily basis, they're updating a COVID dashboard at 10.45 each day. Um, we're able to connect practices to this reporting mechanism and uh, they're able to submit cases and follow up on, on uh, patients who have uh, tested positive and, and find additional information. So it's, it's provided a very, uh, well-connected reporting system, which uh, will only grow to add more and more uh, helpful things, we hope. And, and just, uh, I know our, our main listeners would be healthcare professionals, but just to remind, uh, you know, how that information is shared, like beyond uh, clinic to clinic um, for for acute needs, but also like you said, syndromic surveillance uh, on the on the aggregate for anything, be it STDs and and those trends or flu, influenza, and and, and all the other things that that would be tracked from a public health standpoint. Um, you know, talk about the privacy issues and and what are some of the concerns there. Yeah, this so privacy of course is paramount, and uh, that's part of the. The uh, HIPAA uh, regulations, which were, were put into effect uh, at least 30 years ago now, HIPAA has been around a lot longer than a lot of people know, but uh, in order to share that information, uh, it, first of all, there's not a, a big database in the sky somewhere where all of your health information goes if you're part of this ecosystem. 
the health information remains at the clinic where you provided it. So if you go see your doctor down the street and they they maintain your chart, that's where your data stays. However, if you are in that uh, emergency room on vacation, the patient can um, give permission for them to access those records. And so the patient must authorize the use of those records, at which point a request is, gone, uh, is sent out over this system to poll and collect this information in real time. Um, and if the permissions aren't in place, they're, they're not allowed to be shared. There are some what they call break, break glass uh, scenarios where it's life or death that this information is shared and all of that is recorded and stored and, uh, and, and overseen by uh, various rules and regulations. Um, so I think it, it so far, you know, there have been some high profile uh, breaches of data which have, you know, caused uh, data to be shared unnecessarily, but for the most part, it's been a very helpful uh, system that has been put in place and uh, it's getting better and better uh, with every update. Now, that aggregate data has to be valuable for all kinds of different research. You know, when it's, uh, you know, the the sharing of it, I guess there's some terminology that I'm, it's escaping my mind right now, but like, um, you know, when the de-identified data is shared into a big, into the cloud somewhere where people can access it. I mean, talk about some of the things that are ongoing right now, um, some of the exciting things maybe in the public health space that that data is helping to uncover or support, you know, types of research that is supporting. And I think, you know, we don't need to talk about IRB kinds of things because if we're talking about, um, you know, de-identified data, and, and just, you know, how that's shared, how that's uh, used, and how that's accessed and things like that. Well, so, um, yeah, none of the data I've been speaking about is actually available for research. That's just simply available for healthcare. Uh, there are aggregated data that are um, hospital discharge data is sent twice a day from all hospitals to, we have a location in Chapel Hill called NC Detect, uh, that is our syndromic surveillance operation. And the data is aggregated there, and um, they're able to uh, report infection curves um, for influenza each year, for instance, or, you know, any, any type of uh, infectious disease um, is tracked upon uh, discharge at each hospital. Uh, deaths are tracked as well. And so those statistics are monitored by our uh, syndromic surveillance uh, uh, department there at NC Detect. It's at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So that, that is available for research. And then each institution, like uh, Wake Forest Baptist, has their own data warehouse. Uh, or they call it a data lake now, I guess, but all of our institutional data, including our outlying clinics, are put into the data warehouse, and you can access this data as a researcher um, with various permission levels. The lowest permission level would be 
viewing aggregated de-identified data. So there's no HIPAA uh, breach there, but you're able to go in and um, ask a number of questions, readmissions uh, with uh, those who have been tagged with asthma, for instance, is one of the projects I've been involved in recently, study how often folks who had the asthma in their problem list ended up readmitting to the hospital uh, within 30 days. Um, interesting. Uh, let's see. Um, what else was I going to ask? <laughs> uh, so uh, what what types of things would you like to see done with that? I mean, what kind of questions that you have as far as public health uh, types of interesting questions to have and, and how that would apply and translate to both uh, clinicians and and the general public? If you can think of any. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think one of the emerging questions that we're actually making progress with is along the lines of social determinants of health. This is kind of a uh, popular buzzword these days, and I think it is quite important. It's the idea that the visit that you have with your doctor and the things that you usually discuss have only a small fraction to do with your health as a human being. Uh, the, the larger picture includes is where you live safe, is the water that you drink clean and safe, is the food that you eat healthy, uh, do you have a safe area to exercise, are you able to uh, get transportation to your various uh, healthcare appointments and so forth. All of those domains are uh, part of a person's social determinant of health. And what we're starting to do is catalog those for each patient in the practice and begin to put together a um, treatment plan that takes into account all of these various domains uh, and, you know, gives them suggestions on how to better use um, both public assistance and some of the uh, social services that are available out there. And it's not until you begin categorizing and cataloging all of these opportunities and matching them up with the needs out there. But once you're able to um, make suggestions and prescriptions to patients in real time, you can really start to promote public health in a holistic way, not just in a prescription drug type of way or, uh, you know, here's some exercises that you might want to try for your rehab. You know, you can talk about here are farmer's markets near your house and here, here are different bus routes on, uh, you know, when we could get you in for your next appointment, let's make sure that that matches up with available transportation. And, you know, housing, I think, is one of the biggest issues to solve these days. Um, so those are the things that would really make a difference in, in patients' lives. Yeah, we talked about uh, food insecurity this morning with uh, the cancer dietitian. So I'll get that up pretty soon. Um, one of the, you know, just by adding a, a little series of questions like i mentioned the sbirt earlier um, a social determinants questionnaire for each patient does uncover a lot of these issues that may have led to their acute problem 
and uh, you know just how important that is to reduce costs from a societal level too, to make sure everyone's lifted up out of those stressors that that, that cause those uh, obstacles to quality health. So, very important issues there. And and you know we're we're so fortunate that we we haven't experienced, or most of us haven't experienced food insecurity, but there are a lot of us out there that are. And and I think for providers to to recognize and acknowledge that and to look for it look for signs and and to be have easily accessible uh prescriptions for them uh to to seek out those same resources you mentioned um so yeah i see that as a as a win for society to get everyone into the ability i mean i you know i've said before that you know, it's we don't think about leaving our front door and going for a jog, but one of those things. If you don't have a safe place to exercise, then you know you can't be expected to to keep fit. You know, with with inexpensive means um, like just putting on a pair of shoes and going going outside. So, um, you know, the listeners, I, I think it's always a good message for for people to take on is not everyone's as fortunate as you are and and, it, and and just to think about that as a thought exercise to you know how not having those things we take for granted would affect your overall health and you know we know the effect of cortisol from stress and how that just has a cascade effect to all overall health um so tell me some of the healthy things you've been doing during the, the stay at home uh, era to to stay healthy both of body and mind yeah, so uh, uh, my my thirteen year old daughter and I are both uh, rock climbing enthusiasts, and we, you know, before COVID, would go to the rock climbing gym several times a week. Uh, she was on the rock climbing team; she still is. So they're doing their rock climbing uh, drills. A lot of it is is core work, you know, planks and sit ups and all that kind of stuff. So she's doing that now over a Zoom call. Um, and then she and I built a small, uh, some, some people might think it's pretty large, but a rock climbing wall on the patio. So we've been doing some, um, been, been doing some, uh, rock climbing simulations on the back patio, uh, which that's been quite fun to, to, uh, do that late into the evening and have the passersby watching us. Um, my, my older daughter who is turning, 16 in two weeks now she is uh, doing her dance via zoom calls and my wife is doing uh, her jazzercise uh, exercises using Facebook live so we're all kind of getting into it trying to trying to simulate and and stay active the only obstacle is bandwidth these days right (laughs) And and hopefully you have current. <laughs> um, so so I'm going to wrap up with one more question, and that is, um, what uh, things from your public health studies, you know, things, you know, the water pump and the germ theory and all that stuff. I mean, throughout history, can we learn anything so we don't repeat it um, from some of these outbreaks? What what have you seen? What what comes to mind when when you think about things that have happened in history that that may you know, people have been in this situation before, they just didn't have broadband. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I uh, studied the the plague, you know, from uh, from London, and that was uh, fleas on rats that were, were biting people, and that, you know, that was much worse. The society was hit much worse then 
because they were so packed into homes and the sanitation was so poor that it just ravaged everyone. So I guess we've arrived at a time here where most of us um, are able to social distance and stay at home and stay in a safe spot. And, um, you know, unless you're in a prison or a nursing home or one of these vulnerable populations, you're relatively safe at that point. So that's that's kind of good to know. And also, as you point out, there was no uh, internet back in those days to tie everyone together and maintain some semblance of um, productivity and continuity. So uh, we have those resources at our fingertips if we're lucky here. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a sanitation public health game that just says avoid the spread of germs, wash hands, um, you know, cover your cough. Just some ba very basic public health principles would solve everything if we could all just do them uh, effectively at the same time and, and have no slip-ups. We'd be all right. So. Yeah, so, so... Another public health... <laughs> well, what I was going to ask is, where does the responsibility... I mean, yeah, at home, we'd like to teach our... Hopefully, everyone teaching their kids about proper... Uh, hygiene and everything but i mean is that something we need to move to the schools and even even into the private practices when when a child and a, a parent come for a well visit you know is that the time to to do a little uh session instead of maybe instead of waiting in the lobby they're given a, a video of of infection control reminders and stuff like that so i, I just think this you know as far as a public health issue now it's more than anything to prevent pure germophobia where we're all just like scared of each other uh which i've witnessed uh you know recently um just on the trail on the sidewalk people are just you know in the stores people are being weird about germophobia so um there's going to have to be some serious education i think of the general public so everyone just assumes a some base level of knowledge of of keeping their germs to themselves what are your thoughts on that well, it's a weird time because the, the this is a very abstract concept that if we don't do the right thing, then pe more people will get sick and die. So therefore, if we do do the right thing, then it will appear like we're overreacting. That's just the that's the way it's going to it's going to seem if if we stay right now, we have one hundred and thirty one deaths and 5,465 confirmed cases in North Carolina. Today is the 16th of April, um, which is pretty good. I mean, you know, I don't want to see 131 people die, but, um, you know, that's that's probably on online with uh, influenza or one of those types of infectious diseases. And so it makes it hard to understand that, you know, it, it makes it seem like we're we're overreacting, but that's what gets us here. So, it's a little bit of an interplay between doing enough and not scaring people so much that they take it way over the top. And I'm, I'm reminded by 9-11, you know, I remember people saying as soon as the 9-11 attacks happened, people say, oh, life is never going to be the same again. And I just couldn't even grasp what, what are they talking about? But as soon as uh, this COVID thing landed, that was the first thing I started thinking is life will never be the same again. And with 9-11, what that meant was 
you can't just casually go through an airport or book a ticket the day of and, you know, sort of anonymously pop from here to there. Now uh, there are all of these controls in place to make sure that you're not an evildoer uh, using air transportation as a weapon. And so your question about education, I think there will be some education, but there will probably be also some uh, measures put into place, taking temperatures at certain entrance ways. There will be um, maybe hand washing monitors in certain places, maybe required masks here and there. Um, so and, and then I've also heard that um, part of returning to daily life, there's going to be some infection tracing and monitoring. So if you um, you know, if, if you have a positive COVID test, they'll be looking at who you've interacted with in the past several days to make sure that you warn them. And, uh, you know, they could be keeping an eye on you to make sure that you're quarantining as requested. So, you know, it's hard to know what exactly controls will be put into place, how draconian it will be, but I do think it will change everything. And I think there will be uh, some responsibility from society to, to learn and to adapt. And there will probably be some measures put in place to uh, uh, trust but verify. So there'll be the verified uh, elements put into place, which hard to know what that'll look like. But I, I do think we'll be seeing some significant changes. Well, listening to you, I thought about, I thought about uh, what implications uh, – that has for uh, public health as as segmented geographically. In other words, like we have these, you know, we're surveilling by county, and it's interesting because different counties, different cities, different localities have have created kind of their own guidelines based on what and what. Um, and then you have the state over that, and then you have the federal, and then you have global organizations making recommendations. So, um, you know, what is the granular level of public health? Is it neighborhood block? Is it, you know, is it city boundaries? You know, what, where, where do you see the the real challenges coming from, and who has authority, and and where those those boundaries really exist, and from a public health standpoint. Yeah, so each uh, each uh, state has their own public health system. They have their own Department of Public Health, and they have various public health entities that are spread throughout their state, whether it be in townships or counties or cities. It all depends on how they set that up in each state. And so I think as we begin to move forward from this, uh, you know, social isolation or uh, quarantine that we're, we've got going on here, each local public health entity, however they're set up in each state, is going to be giving direction on um, how that should happen. And local governors are going to be uh, communicating that. You're going to have town mayors communicating that. You're going to have business leaders who have an interest in uh, keeping their customers and their workers happy and healthy, and they're going to be communicating that as well. So I think it's really going to be a local effort, and local means different things in different parts of the country. Uh, I think you will hear some uh, 
um, some goals and targets and things on a national level. Um, certainly, the there's a daily press briefing from the White House that has certain directives that they would like to maintain. But where the rubber meets the road, it's going to be as local as possible. I have a feeling because that's that's where you know our situation in Forsyth County, North Carolina, is completely different than in Manhattan, New York. Yeah. So yeah. it needs to be tailored to the local populace and to the the uh, situation on the ground. Yeah, I, that's yeah, my yeah, thoughts that's exactly. I I just wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy. <laughs> um, so you, I can't guarantee that one. <laughs> so one of the things uh, also came to mind. I I went went by Home Depot. I had to pick some stuff up on the way back from the dentist this morning, and uh, they have now counters human counters outside to to monitor how many can come in the store and i always thought to myself how long before that's automated and then what you said about surveillance uh you know now i and tying it to travel and stuff like that now you know i'm seeing a future where there are these you know uh magnetometers before you walk into any uh, store and it will give you the green light when it's you know there's room for you in the store and as you walk through you know you get your temperature taken um you know your antibody status uh, <laughs> your weight and so you know when you go to the doctors for whatever visit was the first thing you you have done the uh medical assistant takes you and weighs you and takes your temperature and takes your oxygen level and all that stuff so now they you know we'll have that at every entrance to every um public uh you know or or private business for that matter and, and uh so we'll all know our health status all the time almost like you're wearing a my zone band or a fitbit you're going to have it you know recorded at every 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 place you want to go into um so that'll be interesting when it comes to health data um if, if those machines are actually recording um things and what who who gets to share that um you know and that what think about the snapshot of public health you know if, if you had all the commerce recorded from not not a transactional point of view but the health of the person doing the 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 shopping or whatever it is they're doing so anyway some some interesting thoughts to have about the uh, future and, and how that looks um based on you know germs i mean and the last thought i'm gonna have is just you know we all assume we don't have it unless we know we have it and everyone assumes we do so <laughs> you know um you know i can't if i want to go to the fresh market right now it's required that i have a mask on so uh, we've reached that point already um in some places so interesting times and i appreciate your time today chris um any last words you want to share with the listening audience with your close 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 uh view of your mustache there <laughs> <laughs> sorry uh yeah no i think um you know, I I always enjoy change and disruption. I mean, I hate that it comes at the expense of people losing life and livelihood. I really do. But uh, I think anything to get us out of a rut, you know, I think for a long time we were going to work, assuming that we needed to be somewhere from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we'll buy everything from Amazon.com and have it shipped from China and, you know, you just stay on the treadmill to keep the commerce going. 
And so what this has done for me anyway is it's, you know, I am not, uh, I, I'm not leaving the house ever, obviously. So I'm hanging out with my family. I'm spending more time with them. I'm focusing more on uh, what is important and relevant in my home. And that's been kind of a neat experience. And so I hope um, it's been a positive thing for others around the country who are doing the same thing. And it hasn't been a painful experience. You know, obviously, if there's loss of income and, and death, those things aren't good. But I hope there's also been some good that comes out of it. I hope there's been some innovation in the way that we deliver education, the way that we maintain uh, social contacts with one another without having to actually be in the same place. And, uh, you know, I hope that our fears of draconian uh, society are less relevant than the changes that we've made in making a happier home and happier families. So that's that's kind of my uh, positive spin on things moving forward. Well, I like that. I mean, I, I like to think that uh, this time allows a lot of people to find out what's really important and essential and, and maybe not be such, you know, consumers uh, and more more creators. I think these these times allow that. Um, and I do hope I mean, I know we talked about social determinants and I'm sure there's a lot of homes that are in that are not happy places right now um, and, and there's conflict and strife and, and I just hope that enough time will calm some of those you know old family wounds or you know trauma past traumas are dealt with and, and, and maybe even behavioral health will improve uh, based on people just really grounding themselves in, in, in what home means I think um, you know, and what family and what, what closeness and, and, and really where they find themselves on the, you know, in the social world, like, uh, you know, am I introvert? Am I extrovert? How much social connection do I need? Um, how much do I desire, you know, and, and, and what am I doing to help others? I think is another thing that we can think about, uh, like what, you know, while I'm at home, what are the things I would like to be doing and why, you know, those, those are a lot of existential questions. And I think we're all existing right now in, in this time in our homes and stuff. And we, those questions come to mind those existential things. So, um, I, again, I appreciate your time today and, uh, let's do this again soon. All right. Sounds good, man. I enjoyed it. So, uh, I'll, I'll look for more conversations on the vlog. Mm-hmm.